So we are jumping into Daniel chapter 8. How many of you guys are stoked for another vision? <laughs> More beasts and goats and things. How many of you guys read ahead? Good, good. Right on. <clears throat> I, I love teaching through books of the Bible, partly because... There are a lot of places where I would naturally just skip over, if I'm honest. And this is probably one of those chapters that if we weren't just teaching through the book of Daniel, I'd probably skip it. And, but teaching through books of the Bible like this kind of force us to sit with this. We have to actually take the time to, what is the Lord saying? What does he have for us in this passage and I think, um, I think it's good to do. It's worth teaching. Daniel 8 is a fascinating transition book, transition chapter. So it, it's making this jump. The rest of the book thus far, most of the book, starting in chapter 2, has been written in what language? I know I have the mic, and you guys are all out there, but what language has most of this book been written in? Aramaic. Is that the normal? Is that what the rest of the Old Testament's written in? No. So chapter 2, verse 4, Daniel switches. He's writing in Hebrew, and then he switches, and he writes from 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 7 in Aramaic. And in chapter 8, he switches back to Hebrew. It's really important as we get into this. It's important because when we look at chapter 8, it's very intentionally written for God's people. The rest of the book was written in a language that was common to the Gentiles. It was common to the rest of the people around. It was, it was intended to be read by even the people who were far from God. It was intended to be an open book, but at this point, it switches to being in Hebrew. And now, and for the next few chapters, this is something that Daniel is writing intentionally, almost subversively, in a language. It's not code, but it's written specifically for the Hebrew people. It's written to give hope. It's written to give courage. It's written to give foreknowledge and strength for what God is about to do and what God is planning. Chapter 8, if you read ahead, is definitely related to chapter 2 with the statue and the four kingdoms. It's definitely related to chapter 7 that we looked at for the last several weeks. But it also introduces some new themes. It introduces some new concepts that are at play. Three main characters in this chapter. We've got a ram, a goat, and a little horn. More horns. And in this chapter, we get something different. We get an interpretation from Gabriel. 
Some things are made clear and other things remain unclear and require us to just with patience and grace sit with the passage. Ultimately, though, there's a main theme that comes across that is very clear. We see it throughout this book and it rings true through here. It's that our God, the God that we serve, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he reigns supreme. He is sovereign over kings and rulers. I remember Daniel chapter 2, verse 20. Daniel says this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets them up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things to those who, Uh, He knows what is in darkness, and light dwells with him. That's our God. Tyrants rise up briefly, and then they come onto the stage, but then they're taken out by God. He lifts them up, and he tears them down. The good news is that if our God has that kind of power, if he has the kind of ability to raise a king up and to tear him down, then surely he has that same kind of power and control over the issues that confront us in our lives, the tyrants, the little conspicuous horns that develop in our lives. The good news is that when rams and goats and all these things come... (laughs) running around the earth. Our God is sovereign. He's unmoved. So tonight, it's going to be a little bit of a history lesson. We're going to go through this chapter, just kind of walk through it. Is that okay? It's going to be okay because I have the mic. Two sections. This book is, this chapter is broken up into two main sections. The first one that we read together tonight is the vision. That's what Daniel saw. The second half of this chapter is the interpretation, mainly given by the angel Gabriel. So as we get into this, this first half, the vision, it's important to note some similarities and some differences between chapter 7 and chapter 8. They're related, clearly, but they're different. Chapter 7, if you remember, which you hopefully do, we spent like four weeks on it. Chapter 7 gives us a vision of four kingdoms. Some commentators, some scholars say that that's possibly Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and then Rome. Chapter 8 provides a narrowing in or a focus on the Medo-Persian Empire, Persia, and on Greece. And it almost completely focuses on those two kingdoms. And what's interesting, just worth to note, scholars disagree on chapter 7 as to which kingdoms they're talking about. Very few people disagree on this chapter. We'll see why here shortly. In particular, this will lay out details of what will happen towards the end of the 
Greek Empire. What will develop into a very tumultuous time for God's people, especially uh, as the kingdom develops there. But God in his grace, he's telling them beforehand. He's giving them wisdom and insight ahead of time, hundreds of years ahead of time, so that they are prepped and ready. God's people have never faced, at this point, they'd never faced something as bad as what they were going to face towards the end of the Greek Empire. That even with the exile, even with Babylon, and being stripped from their homeland, something yet was coming that was even worse. Historians, for the most part, agree this little horn that we look at in chapter 8 here is a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He's an evil, antichrist type ruler who came up towards the end of the Greek Empire. He instituted what historians call a systematic program designed to eradicate completely every trace of Israel's faith, worship, and life. It's pretty evil. Systematic program designed to eradicate every trace of Israel's faith, worship, and life. Hence, there was an extreme urgency justifying these details that we get in this prophecy. The day was coming when Israel would need this revelation. They would need to know that God knew it beforehand. John Calvin said this, The faithful were informed beforehand of these grievous and oppressive calamities to induce them to look up to God when they were oppressed by such extreme darkness. This is actually the point of all eschatological prophecy is that we would see that God knew in, ahead of time that we could look up and look to him, that we wouldn't be caught off guard by chaos and unfolding evil things, that we would look to God, the author and finisher. Let's look at this vision. Let's, let's just walk through this. In verse 1, we see that God, our God, knows the future. That he knows that the Persians are coming. Daniel receives this second vision following his first vision that we looked at in chapter 7. And he receives it in the, was it the, what did it say, the second year? Third year of King Belshazzar. Two to three years later after chapter 7, he receives this vision. It's interesting to note the repetition in this chapter of the word vision and saw. This is very specifically, Daniel's not reading a book. He's not having thoughts. He's seeing something. This is a vision. This vision takes place in Susa, in the capital 
of Persia, the province of Elam, out by a canal. Doesn't necessarily mean that Daniel had physically moved 220 miles east of Babylon, because that's where that would have been. But like John in the book of Revelation, he's carried away by the Spirit, and he sees this vision that's taking place in Susa. It's an important place for the Old Testament. Anybody else know what happens in Susa? Esther takes place in the city. It's an important city for the post-exilic Jewish people. Verse 3, Daniel looked up and he saw that there was a ram. In this vision, he looks up and he sees a ram with two high, long horns. One was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last, it says. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. It's a combination of two empires that joined forces, hence the two horns. The longer, stronger, and higher horn points to the Persian greater its strength and power and dominance. The ram is a proper symbol for the Persians. Actually, they used it for themselves. They would go to battle with the ram as a symbol to show their power and their strength. Under King Cyrus and his successors, uh, they would extend their empire, charging westward and northward and southward. No one could stop the ram. No one could stop the Persian empire in its conquest for power. Just like Daniel 8 says, no one could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. For quite a while, the Persian Empire seemed indestructible. They seemed immovable, unbeatable. That is, until God raises up and sends a male goat, unlike anything the world had ever seen. And the vision pivots. Just as God knew that the Persian Empire would arise, he knew, he foreknew that the rise of Greece would come, that Alexander the Great would come. He knew it. This ram that looked untouchable gets handled, destroyed by this goat. I know all the animal symbol symbolicness is kind of odd for us. We don't typically use this, at least not normally. But we do in some ways. Like We talk about sports teams based off of animals, right? I don't know. We do cycling, so not really animals. But I'm sure you do. Um, so the male goat comes. He comes from the west so fast that he doesn't even touch the ground. And the whole earth feels his fury. He also has a conspicuous horn between his eyes. It's really rare to get Bible scholars to agree on things. 
This is one of the places that almost all of them, as you read through the commentaries on Daniel 8, almost all of them agree. This is Greece. This is prophetically speaking of Greece, specifically of Alexander the Great, is this conspicuous horn. Verse 21 actually makes it really clear. We didn't read it tonight, but if you look down in your Bible at verse 21, it says, And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between its eyes is the first king. Hey, that's Alexander. His life, Alexander's life, would be brief from five, sorry, 356 B.C. to 323 just about 33 years. But his influence in spreading Greek culture is still felt, still with us today. Especially in the Western world. The, the influence of his conquest is still touching us today. Alexander and his Greek armies, he came against Persia with powerful wrath, the NIV says, with savage fury. He quickly, decisively defeats and destroys the Persian Empire. The verbs that the scripture uses here, it's enraged, struck, breaking, casting down, trampling. These are violent words. No one could rescue the ram from the power of this goat. The lights went out on, on the ram and the male goat, I think the NIV calls him the shaggy goat, is on the scene. Alexander and Greece, it's true, they became powerful overnight. And at the pinnacle of his power, Alexander dies. This is all just world history. Nothing new here, right? Alexander dies. In the language of the vision, the large horn shatters. And four kings, four generals arise, and they divide his kingdom into four. They continue in various forms, ultimately, until Rome comes onto the scene. The details and the accuracy of chapter 8 is pretty stunning when you look at it. Daniel is seeing and writing all of this hundreds of years before it actually happens. The vision goes on, and our God knows the future. He's well aware of what's coming. Daniel, he shows Daniel the rise ultimately of this king, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. Familiar with that name? Anybody? Look at verse 8, Daniel 8, 8. The goat became exceedingly great. It's Greece. <clears throat> and when he was strong... The great horn was broken, and instead of it came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So his kingdom, Alexander's kingdom, following his death, divided up amongst four uh, generals, separated out. 
And then we see the development of one of these horns, one of these kings. It's probably worth clarifying because chapter 7 talked about a little horn also. Guys remember? That little horn in chapter 7 is a, probably the Antichrist that we look at towards the end of the story. This little horn in chapter 8, most scholars agree, is Antiochus Epiphanes. It's important because he's definitely a shadow of the Antichrist that you read about in the book of Revelation and 2 Thessalonians and other places in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament authors referenced him as a shadow of what would come in the Antichrist. He was that bad. So scholars again agree, this is Antiochus IV. He emerged from the Seleucid Empire, that one of the four generals. He would reign from 175 to 163 BC. And he would severely persecute God's people. The accuracy with which these exploits are cataloged has actually led some more liberal scholars to look at this and say there's no way Daniel saw all this happen hundreds of years before it did. So some people would actually say the only way this is possible is if he, somebody, a pseudonym, or somebody, a, a scribe, filled in this information after it happened. There's no way he could have been this accurate. But we know... And we believe in a supernatural, sovereign, all-knowing, almighty God. We believe in a God who knows all things. He knows all things in the past, in the present, and in the future. We believe that God in his kindness, in his grace and mercy, gave Daniel this vision to prepare his people for what was coming. Something so tragic was coming that God is preparing his people beforehand. Antiochus, his persecution of Israel began around 170 BC. It would last around seven years. He grew in power, he grew in pride. He brutally persecuted God's people. And in his mind, he said, why not? He gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He thought of himself as Zeus manifest. Why not? One of the commentators says this, the little horn in reaching for the, stores, in reaching for the stars is claiming equality with God. He's actually trying to present himself as equal with Yahweh. Verse 11 and 12 bears this out. He proclaims equality with God. He proclaims equality with the prince of the hosts. And his reign of terror begins. He stops the daily worship in the temple. He stops the sacrifice. 
He destroys the place of God's sanctuary. He throws the truth, the word, the Torah on the ground, counting it as worthless. For a time, he was successful in whatever he did. Verse 13 and 14 are fascinating. It lays out this 2,300 evenings and mornings. And here's one place scholars disagree. Some say that it's about seven years, depending on how you interpret evening and morning. Some say three and a half years. Interesting, just fascinating history. In 168 BC, the temple's desecrated. He actually takes a pig in the temple. Pig, clean, unclean. Unclean. And he offers it in the temple to Jupiter. Defiling, desecrating the temple. That happens in 168 BC. In 164, the temple is cleansed and restored. Fascinating, that's about three and a half years. Just the way all of these details play out. God knows the future. He knows full well what's coming. And in his grace, he let Daniel know. You see a running theme there? That's not where this chapter ends. Daniel is perplexed. He sees this vision of goats. Remember, this is happening hundreds of years before it actually happened. He sees goats and rams and horns, and he's perplexed. We have the hindsight of knowing the history. I can tell you the story of the Greeks and the splitting up of the four kingdoms. He doesn't, doesn't have any of that. He sees a goat with four horns. He's perplexed. So God sends Gabriel to interpret this vision. Our God is a revealing God. He doesn't just leave us hanging. He delights in making himself known. He delights in revealing mysteries to us. The second half of this chapter, God sends the angel Gabriel to bring understanding to this vision. And this is how our God works. He doesn't just leave us struggling. For us as Christians, we have the Spirit of God living and dwelling inside of us to reveal Jesus and the Scriptures to us. So this is what Daniel already knows. Daniel knows the little horn of great depravity is going to arise. He's going to make himself great. There's going to be calamity. There's, all this is going to happen. Four horns are going to come. But like I said, he needs some clarity. Here's how this works. Daniel's watching this vision. He's trying to understand it. He's trying to wrap his brain around what's happening. And suddenly he says, there stood before him one having the appearance of a man. This being in front of him has a name, Gabriel. It's an angel of God. His name means man of God, or, or elsewhere it could also mean God is my hero or my warrior. Daniel is the only place in the Old Testament where we see names of angels. Happens twice. 
here. And then again in chapter 10, we meet someone named Michael. God sends this angel to explain the vision to Daniel. Without divine aid here, Daniel would not be able to comprehend what he saw. God's intention is to make it clear. He's not trying to shroud this in mystery. He's trying to prepare his beloved people for what's about to come. So Gabriel shows up. Not surprisingly, Daniel is terrified. I, I love all of these interactions with spiritual beings because it's, this is typically the response. Daniel falls on his face. He fell face down, prostrate before this heavenly messenger. Daniel, <clears throat> Gabriel addresses Daniel as a son of man. In this context, like we looked at last week, it means merely a human a mortal. Listen to last week's sermon more about that title, Son of Man. Gabriel tells Daniel that he's come to help him understand the vision, referring to the time at the end. So he's, he's there to in, interpret this vision. I'm like, how far do I want to get into this? And in this context, he says about the end. It's important to also point out here. I think he's talking about the end of the things that he saw in the vision. So we read that. We're in Daniel. There's weird stuff happening. We were just talking about the Antichrist. We tra translate that straight to the end times. I think he's very specifically talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. It's a clear reference, I think, to him. So the angel Gabriel starts talking. Like other people do, he goes into a comatose state. He says, it's kind of humorous, he fell into a deep sleep. Gabriel touches him. He gets him to his feet. He says, I will make known to you what shall be in the latter end of the, of the indignation or of the wrath. For it refers to an appointed time and end. That is the time when this persecution will come. God will discipline his people under Antiochus IV. The time has been determined. It's been set by the sovereign Lord of history. He knows what he's doing. He knows what's about to happen. God's people will suffer for their sins. They'll suffer. And in their suffering, it won't be indefinite. There'll be an end to it. God is in absolute control the whole time. He knows what's about to happen. This includes the trials of the tribulations that they're about to they're about to undergo. Human powers are merely instruments. Kings are raised up and torn down. They're instruments in the hands of an all-powerful God. Verse 20 through 22 further enlightens this. It brings clarity for us. As he's interpreting this vision, the two-horned ram 
Medes and Persian, Medes and Persia. The shaggy goat, if you have an NIV, the male goat. It's Greece. The large horn between the eyes of the goat. It's the first king, Alexander the Great. The four kingdoms that replaced the shattered horn. It's the four generals that would rise up after him. Gabriel says, they will rise from the nation of Greece and Alexander, but without its power. These are not sovereign nations. These, these are individual rulers that come to power, but they don't have the authority or the power of, of Alexander, ultimately. Then the rest of this we turn, the rest of this chapter, we turn to focus on Antiochus Epiphanes, referred to as a ruthless, powerful king. The ESV calls him a king of a bold face. He is characterized by arrogance and pride. He will arise near the end of their kingdom and ultimately he will arise near the end of their kingdom only to be taken out by the might of Rome. Rome is on its way. This will happen Chapter 8, uh, verse I think 12 says, uh, when the rebels, God's rebellious people, have reached their full measure. And he will arise, this ruthless king. I took note as I was reading through this chapter this week. He is a prominent word that's used over and over in this last section, 24 through 25. He is a ruthless king. He will come to his throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. This is a demonically empowered puppet, satanically empowered antichrist figure. He will cause terrible destruction and succeed in whatever he does. It's verse 24. He'll be victorious in battle. He'll achieve power. He'll amass wealth. He destroys the powerful among the holy people. He'll defeat his opponents in war. He will cause deceit to prosper through a cunning and through his influence. He was shrewd and deceptive. He stopped at nothing to accomplish his agenda and to prosper. He was double-faced and deceptive. He will, in his own mind, make himself great, arrogant, prideful. He called himself God incarnate. Could go on and on about this guy. Gabriel affirms that this vision is true and that Daniel must seal it up. He must write it down and preserve it for the days that are coming ahead. He must put it in a, in a fashion that could be communicated broadly to prepare the people. What's amazing is the accuracy here. God knew way ahead of time what was about to happen. Antiochus would come. He hated the Jews. He did everything he could to destroy them. 
murdered tens of thousands of them, defiled the temple. Like I said, he offered a pig on the altar. He erected a shrine to Jupiter. He prohibited temple worship, forbid circumcision by the pain of death. He sold, according to 2 Maccabees, 40,000 Jews into slavery. This is an evil guy. He slaughtered everyone who was found in possession of the Torah. If you had a Bible, the Bible of their day, you were slaughtered. This eventually led to what historians call the Maccabean Revolt. Happened around 164 BC. Judas Maccabeus, literally the last name means the hammer, Judas the hammer, comes onto the scene and he would lead the Jews to victory. He would restore again faithfulness to their religion. Even today, he is celebrated and remembered, the Jewish, Jewish celebration of Hanukkah is about Judas Maccabeus and this Maccabean revolt. Festival of Lights is there to commemorate and remember their liberation. This is referenced, Jesus references this, John 10, 22, when the light of the world walked into the temple. And Antiochus, what happens? This might be the first time I've ever read an apocryphal book. You don't have it in your Bibles. Second Maccabees, chapter 9, tells us what happened to Antiochus. It says this, The all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and unseen blow. As soon as he ceased speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels, for which there was no, re no relief and with sharp internal tortures. And that very justly, and that very justly, he had tortured the, the bowels of others with many strange inflictions. So he's being tortured. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence, but was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to hasten the journey. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along. And the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. And just like that, Antiochus, this evil, insolent, angry king, is gone. The Lord raises up kings and tears them down. Empires rise and fall. And then we get to verse 27. Verse 27 in chapter 8. I love how real this is. Daniel says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and laid sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Even with an angel interpreting it, he was appalled and didn't understand it. I love the honesty of that passage. He was sick for days, overcome, but eventually 
he got up and went about the king's business. What Daniel saw, what he took in in this vision, wiped him out. It overwhelmed him. It overpowered his ability to deal with what he had seen. The NIV says he was worn out. He laid exhausted. The message says, I walked around in a daze, unwell for days. Daniel was deeply distressed. He was terrified by the visions of chapter 7. But here, it was completely different. He was undone. It was more than he could bear. He was confronted by the reality that God was in control and that his kingdom would eventually come. But to know that there was so much evil, so much wickedness in the world, so much suffering for God's people that was yet to come, it was overwhelming. It was too much, at least for a while. His sickness passed. He got up. God's grace was sufficient. And he went back to work like he normally would. He rose and went about the king's business. He returned to his duties to which God had called him. He did not retire from the world in view of the evil days that were coming. He didn't say, look at the nasty stuff that's coming. I can't, I, I can't, I can't even be a part of this. He didn't go to the opposite extreme and live in this like visionary excitement trying to stop what he saw. Instead, he did what the Lord had called him to do. He faithfully executed the last thing God said to do. He went about the king's business. He served faithfully in Babylon. And that's our takeaway, I think, for today. As we read through this chapter, we can get so caught up in the details. But I love this, the way he ends this. He went about the king's business. In view of all that the future holds, we must live holy lives now. We must live faithfully as disciples of Jesus and missionary servants. We must live it out now. Daniel had caught this glimpse, this vision of realities that would take place centuries from now. Things that we know were only shadows of what will ultimately take place in the end times. The question then and the question now that we have to wrestle with is how then should we live? How do we live? Passage after passage, scripture after scripture tells us the same thing. Do the king's business. Walk in obedience. Live in holiness. Purify yourself as he is pure. Plant gardens, marry, raise families. Pray for the good of your city. I read the story this week. While riding to a preaching engagement, one day John Wesley was stopped by a stranger. 
They asked him what he would do if he knew that Christ was going to return at noon the next day. John Wesley reached into a saddlebag. He pulled out his diary. He read out what his engagements were for that day and for the next. And he said, that, dear sir, is what I would do. He was so confident in the Lord's kingdom and the Lord's calling on his life and that he was being faithful to do what the Lord had called him to do, that he was already living as if that was the reality today. Nothing had to change. This, I think, is the spirit of Daniel here. I just do what the Lord told me to do. And as we close out this chapter, this passage, it's really important that we have to read chapter 8 in light of chapter 7. Daniel 7 speaks of Christ coming as the Son of Man. Daniel 9 will speak of Christ coming as the Messiah that's to be cut off. Chapter 8 sheds a little bit more light on his identity, the prince of the hosts, the prince of princes. These four titles begin to shape a picture of our Messiah, the one who will shatter the arrogant king, but not by human hands. The implication is that the prince of princes, the, the king of kings, he will break the evil king. This prediction was fulfilled when King Antiochus was destroyed, and it will see its final fulfillment in Jesus' second coming. Paul writes this about the end times. He says, then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the, Lord, whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he entered the temple at a time of deep religious degradation. The kingdom, the, the temple worship was defiled. And he laid claim on that worship. He sought to restore it to its rightful place. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus' substitutionary death, his resurrection, put an end to the need once and for all to the sacrificial system, the morning and evening sacrifice. And we know from Revelation 5, the final word is not to be had by a ram, it's not to be had by a shaggy goat, but by a lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. A lamb who laid his life down on a cross. He is the one who gets the end of the story. He is the conquering one, the one who is found worthy. And he is the one who deserves all of our praise, all of our worship, all of our adoration, all of our service. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, I thank you that you you're so kind that in your grace in your perfect knowledge you you speak to us. You give us wisdom that it's your desire to reveal the son. that we don't need even angels to speak to us, that we have the Holy Spirit to unveil the scripture to us. Jesus, we love you and we trust you as the victorious king, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. Jesus, we love you.